podcast, which is associated with hessianfirm.com and hatemeditations.com. Welcome to Necropolis. I am Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. I do have some really great news for you today. Shelly is back in action. He's not fully settled into his new house where he's going to have some spawning with his wife, um, but he is able to join via phone today. So the past couple episodes last weekend, I felt really naked without him doing, you know, I had a, fortunately, Raphael from Hessian Firm filled in for one episode, but um, it felt kind of strange, you know, doing episode solo again. So I am very, very happy that Shelly is back. Uh, Shelly has a, the way he approaches things is very organized. He has very organized thinking, he's very, very smart um, and able to dig past the surface, different topics and intelligibly convey his thoughts in a very organized manner that way i i think it's a really good juxtaposition with how chaotic i am because i drink beer while doing this podcast and shelly is like the voice of reason i kind of consider him like shelly's apollo he is order and i am dionysus i am chaos i am drinking beer and having a good time and hooting along so thank you very much shelly for coming back mr co-host well yeah thanks great to be back uh i may be organized but not quite enough to get my internet sorted but uh i'm back on the tea tonight so uh we'll see how it goes <laughs> excellent excellent very very happy to have you back and our guest today is brett claren brett claren is a really interesting guy i've done a little bit of research on him and uh turns out you know uh he has some deep roots in the metal scene he was in a band called sorrow um, back in the early 90s, and with that band, he was signed to Roadrunner Records. So if anyone um, from like a lot of classic albums from Deicide and Immolation, they are familiar with that record label being one of the big ones like Earache and all that. So thank you very much for being on the program, Mr. Brett Klarn. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep, yep, yep. So let's kind of delve into uh, the music of the early days. So you're there in the heyday of death metal. Um, and something I noticed today, like uh, yesterday was the 30th anniversary of uh, uh, Considered Dead, I believe, by Gorguts. And I was just thinking, I was like, man, that was 30 freaking years ago. And back then, there was like mm. so many classic albums that were just released nonstop all over the place, you know, in Europe and North America, even South America to an extent. And with all of that, you know, just raw creativity, you know, just this zeitgeist uh, that shrouded the world with death metal. Um, what was kind of like the early days, like uh, with Sorrow? Like, what was the vibe that you got? How would you compare it to like today? Well, I guess back then, um, a lot of there was sort of a, a blurred line between thrash and death metal, I guess, in the late 80s. Because we actually started off uh, as a band called Apparition. And that was, uh, it was a thrash band. And we decided uh, that we wanted to just play death metal. We wanted to drop all our thrash songs and start playing death metal. And uh, so we changed the name to Sorrow. There's actually a whole story with that too. Um, but I guess I, I can't really compare it to today at all. I mean, it's just, it's a completely different vibe of what's going on. You know, back then there's, as we all know, there was no internet. Finding bands was, going to the record store, looking at the cover and saying, you know, this cover looks cool. I'll try it. Uh, going to shows and just, you know, seeing some of the opening acts, uh, looking at, you know, people would uh, you'd pass around flyers for other shows and you'd actually look at the different bands that were opening for, 
for, for some of the bigger bands, and maybe you would try to check those out, uh, checking out demos from the local record store, and of course, you know, doing a lot of tape trading or just, you know, writing to people and uh, some of the fanzines that were around at the time, just getting, you know, getting the reviews from the fanzines and, uh, you know, reading through those and uh, trying to pick up records or tapes and from out and albums at that point. We're juxtaposed to today where it's, uh, you, you just, you know, you can look on your computer and there's literally a thousand bands for you to, to check out, try. Uh, so it's it's very different. I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but um, you know, growing up at that time, I guess the music was a little bit more special because uh, there was only it was only a handful of people who were into it, and the people who were into it really uh, really were into it because it took effort to find new music and to find bands and to find other people who were into that music. Um, that's not to say again today's not so bad just because you can find a lot of people who are into it, but it kind of, you know, gets a little bit of garbage mixed up in there. So uh, it, it's good and bad. Yeah, so I, I think you're quite a bit older than uh, Shelly and myself. Back in the 90s, I was really into, you know, uh, Metallica and stuff, but I went to a private school um, at the age of 12 and the maintenance guy there, Alan Moses, if you ever opened up uh, one of the early Morbid Angel CDs, his name is in there in the thanks list, but uh, um, he had done the uh, Covenant of Death fan club for Morbid Angel, blah, 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 blah. Really cool figure in the Tampa death metal scene who got me into death metal. And that was my only resource back then in uh, 1997, I would like to say when I was 12. Um, so even back then, um, it was just kind of hard to find things, especially for people who were, uh, you know, new to death metal looking for resources to find uh quality death metal it was hard like he wrote me a two-page list i had that much you know forethought it's like hey i'm moving to texas um write all the albums that i should buy on you know paper for me and he did and uh uh sometime after that uh eventually i got the internet and it was just like everything's there at my fingertips but um it, you're correct it's like even back in the 90s you know you're, i know you started in the 80 late 80s with apparition but even in the 90s it was still hard to find stuff um you know you have to know people you have to you know do snail mail there was a big tape trading scene back then um all all that um coalesced into a really thriving underground scene but if you're like a a kid as an outsider going into that it's really hard to scratch beneath the surface you try to find anything and everything um you can for quality metal so definitely really interesting uh that you were there present for all that you got signed to roadrunner um which is you know i previously mentioned was one of the big labels back then um and with that so you kind of had like a uh you know sorrow going and said a little bit about that apparition um, are, are there any lessons learned from that band like that you carry on today um, having a somewhat commercially successful metal project? I, I guess, uh, you know, um, I, <laughs> not particularly. Um, I, I would say that it's, you know, there's a lot of this is still DIY. You know, you still you still got to do a lot of work. Um, you're not just going to put out you're just not going to put a record out and have people come flock to you there's still a lot of work and people should have the expectation of having to do the work 
and to uh, get people to recognize, you know, recognize who you are, not you personally, but the band and uh, the music that you're trying to do. So it's, you know, you, you got to keep forging, forging forward. Uh, certain bands just, you know, they click right away. So there is that once in a, you know, one out of a thousand that they don't do much, but the music just clicks with people and they, they blow up quickly. But for most people, there's going to be a, a long, long battle and you, you, have, you have to keep forging ahead and keep trying to, you know, stay positive about your music and what you're doing. Um, and eventually, hopefully, if the music's good enough, uh, people will recognize it and you'll, uh, you know, the, you'll further your career, I guess. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't sure. even say the word career, really. Because yeah, I was, it's not a career. It's, yeah, uh, there, there's only a few bands in extreme metal that actually make decent amount of money off it that are able to sustain their livelihoods with that, um, with, uh, you know, paying rent and mortgages, blah, 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 blah. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of, you know, guys in extreme metal, there, there's just not money in it. Like, I know in the, the early 90s, you know, there was a big push for uh, some bigger labels to, you know, see like there's a revenue that could be made from extreme metal um, where you saw, you know, Morbid Angel and Beavis and Butthead and things like that. Um, and but that kind of dwindled out over time. And eventually, you know, the commercial side went to like bands like Demi Borgir and like black metal um, in the late 90s. Um, and it just fizzled out there too. Like uh, you would think like with all the money backing a band like Demi Borgir, you know, regardless of the quality of that music, you know, this, they had, you know, some really like they're supposed to be the next Marilyn Manson pretty much with all the money and right. marketing put behind them um, that they would still be a prominent presence today. But, you know, they're, they're relatively inactive. I think Shagrath or whatever his name is, he's a, uh, married to Nicholas Cage's ex-wife or something now it's really strange and uh um but yeah a little off topic but a little on topic we're talking about that black metal a little bit now and uh your your main project now journey into darkness you handle all the instruments yourself other than the vocals which you annex out um so with that can you tell me a little bit about uh uh, journey into darkness. I know uh, in the mid '90s you had like a all keyboard type of album that you put out through that name. But what is nowadays with that project, uh, you returning to it, it's a completely different format. Yeah. So uh, without uh, getting too <laughs> too lengthy in my details, after Sorrow broke up, um, I was doing. Uh, I started messing around with. Uh, synths and MIDI and, and stuff like that. And there was a lot of, I guess, dungeon synth was starting to come out. And I used to love the intros and interludes on death and black metal albums. I like them, but I was finding a lot of the um, dungeon synth stuff or, you know, stuff like Mortise was getting popular and it was very atmospheric, but, and I, you know, I don't want to, I'm going to say boring. I don't want to get people upset about it, but I wanted a little bit more to it. So what I wanted to kind of do is do this, dungeon synth but still keep some of the death metal into it and uh that's where so i put basically death metal drums to dungeon synth is sort of what happened and at the time um i actually owned a record store back in the mid, mid 90s also called none of the above and uh i had started a small label with the record store so i self-released 
on my own label, the first Journey into Darkness, and then a couple other, Dystopia One, Terminal Sec, Body Clock. Body Clock was the controlled bleeding, Chris Moriarty side project. Uh, so anyway, so all this was going on and uh, that, that never really, like you were saying about the money aspect of it, basically that drained all my finances and I lost a substantial amount of money. Uh, I had sold off the record store and I just, I shut, I shut the label. And by the way, the label, I also did a couple of hardcore releases and uh, Kill Your Idols was on my label. I did their first, um, their first release and Cleanser um, was another band and Justice Unknown. And then I did a 516 comp and I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking here. So um, when the label, when I kind of just stopped doing the label, um, that synth project, Journey into Darkness, kind of sat by the wayside. But at the same time, I was always sort of writing music in the background, um, just trying to trying to develop th that sound into something. And uh, as time kind of progressed, I said, well, you know, I kind of miss writing the heavy stuff and I kind of miss the guitars and maybe some of the vocals. So I decided, you know, um, let me start putting some guitars and vocals to this. And then when I, uh, you know, almost 20 years later, I said, okay, I'm going to get serious with this uh, is when I decided, okay, at this point, I'm going to be putting guitars and vocals to most of it. I'll still have some of the synth stuff and some of the synth elements to it, but uh, I, I wanted it to become the more of the symphonic black metal uh, with some of the death metal and doom roots from, you know, from my years of sorrow. Um, so the jump happened, I'm jumping around all over the place here, but some of, some of that transition from death metal into the black metal actually came around um, the early nineties with Emperor. Uh, when In the Night Side Eclipse came out, that kind of just, you know, uh, was one of the, it was one of those pivotal albums in my life where I just fell in love with it. I played it constantly. And that was before I was doing the JID stuff. But um, so probably some of the Journey into Darkness started incorporating some of that style into it, even though it was more death metal style. Uh, some of that black metal melodies, I think, worked its way into into that. Uh, so jump forward 20 years and I just decided that's that's the path I wanted to take. It's not, it's certainly not an emperor clone. I don't want to be. Uh, Vargarov has done that very, very well. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, using that sort of as a basis of it, keeping that symphonic element, um, but keeping it extremely heavy and keeping some of those elements of black metal um, with, a, again, a little bit of death and doom in there. And again, I'm sorry, I jumped around a lot in that. Oh, it's cool, it's cool. In that um, so your new album, Infinite Universe, Infinite Death, uh, was just released from Spirit Cockpit Publishing, which is actually ran by the, the guys who run the website Grizzly Butts. Um, had never, I didn't even know they had a record label until I was looking into your work. And uh, so that's pretty cool. I've, I have chatted briefly with uh, the guy who mainly runs Grizzly Butts. And uh, Josh, he seems, yeah. yeah, he seems like a really nice guy. Uh, and you can tell from the content on that website that he's really intelligent, knows what he's talking about and all that. So one of the better uh, metal websites um, for reviews and all that out there. Um, so your, your new album is out and I believe it's coming out or it came out on tape, CD and vinyl. Um, how has the reaction been to the, the new album, Infinite Universe, Infinite Death? So far, been very, you know, very good. Uh, uh, it's been. Uh, you're saying you don't like to put numbers on, on reviews, um, but 
a, a lot of the reviews have been from, let's say, good to very good. I got, you know, one or two excellent reviews. Um, and I had one really crappy review that was really early on, which um, was a small Polish blog. And for some reason, the guy went crazy on me. And I don't know if he personally doesn't like me or, he, or, what, or what it was. He just went out of my way to be really nasty in this review. Yeah, but that was think, early on. That definitely was, do not think too much about bad reviews. I can tell you from experience <laughs> that it's nothing personal. It might, have, it might just be a bone to pick for someone. Um, I know, uh, you know, Shelly and I know of this thing called sadistic metal reviews where uh, they used to gather up all the worst or whatever they deemed worse, you know, releases that were coming out and just trash them. And uh, yeah, you now there, there's people like that out there. You never know what the motivation behind that is. I would never, ever think it's personal ever. So uh, uh, go on. Yeah, go yeah. On. Come it's in okay. on that. Uh, I try not gotcha. to write um, negative reviews anymore, but sometimes an album will get me where I'm just like, I need to say something about this and it's normally it's nothing to do with the artist it's just i want to make a point about the particular style that they're playing and unfortunately it means that i kind of end up assassinating their work but i always feel terrible <laughs> about it afterwards but yeah it's never anything personal it's just like i feel like they um sometimes they're just their music seems to be um kind of a lesson in how not to do it and i kind of feel compelled to write about it but yeah. Right. Well, it was just one. Listen, it was one. All the other, and I, I literally have a dozen plus reviews that were all, like I said, from good to very good to excellent. So, it, you know, I shrugged it off pretty quickly. Um, as I, I've mentioned this once before uh, to someone, is that this this music is is very personal, right? I mean, this it, I pour everything into it. I pour my you know my soul, my heart, everything goes into this music and the lyrics. So even you get this one bad review and, you know, you try to shrug it off and say, hey, I don't care. But, you know, that little piece, there's always that little piece of you that still hurts. But um, I kind of shrugged it off. And again, everything else after that was positive. So I was very happy after that. So all in all, I'm very happy. The response has been excellent to this album. Um, I will say that the vinyl has been delayed. There's worldwide shortages of everything. And vinyl is one of those things. So the vinyl was supposed to be done when the album came out in September, but uh, we're looking at maybe, maybe uh, November now for the vinyl. But the, the CDs and the cassettes are are, are available. So uh, some of the vibes that I got off uh, your last two albums, Journey in the Darkness, um, it kind of like reminded me of, I'm unsure if you know this band, I think they're from Poland uh, or thereabouts or Sweden or something, but uh, uh, Luciferian, the, the apostate, have you heard that album? I, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that um, it sounds, I, yes and no. I, it sounds really familiar. I might have, I might have run across that, but not recently. So the the apostate, they had a lot of experimental ideas that went into it. It was like their first album was more of like a morbid angel deicide hybrid type mm -hmm. of sound, and the second album. Um, the apostate went into a rather experimental territory. Um, and they had a lot of like uh, cosmic aspects to it, kind of like mysticism or mysticum um, with the planet Satan, but I would say, you know, way better musicianship. And so it's like, they kind of took the formula from like Nocturnus and like modernized it. However, the, the music is very loose. It's not one of the best releases out there. But there are a lot of interesting ideas in there. 
And the vibe that I kind of get from uh, Journey into Darkness is more like compact. It's not as loose as uh, Luciferian was. It's more of a realized vision. Um, but I still kind of get that old, like uh, death metal, black metal vibe. However, there's, you know, all these layers of keyboards on it, which, you know, Luciferian did as well. But yours, I think it's more like a, it carries like the same kind of spirit, but it's more mature. It's more realized. It's less experimental. Um, so I definitely recommend, you know, that album, uh, The Apostate from Luciferian, if you ever get a chance cool. to check that out. Um, yeah, I, I, I pulled, I, it, I I pulled it up already. Yeah, I think <laughs> your work's a little bit better. Um, um, I know <laughs> I, shit, I shat on, you know, Luciferian a little bit, but I, I do think your, your vision's more realized and what you want to communicate. Um, so I, I really like that album and some of the parts, like some of the songs, like this vibe that it creates is really like, almost otherworldly you know beyond mundane experience and i get the same kind of vibe from your music um you know regardless of uh the compositions because compositions are different like they're very loose you're very compact and more together with your vision um mm -hmm. but uh with your project the the theme of it seems to be like really based on the cosmos and you can kind of tell there's existential dread in there where you know you're looking at the emptiness of life you know look at the song titles of, of everything you've done it's like even the infinite universe infinite death you know it's like everything you know is going to die in an infinite way it's like there's nothing worse than that um <laughs> right so you know what's kind of like the 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 spirit the the bring out an aristotelian term a uh, noose in O-U-S, noose, is like the, uh, the uh, kind of like the, the motivator behind rational thought, but like the, the, the prime motivator behind it. Not necessarily rational thought itself, but what is the spirit, what is the metaphysical side of uh, your lyrical and song title content? Um, as a... I'll start like as a as a person when I'm you know my daily life I try not to be a negative person like I try to be uh, you know happy I try to be a good person uh, very respectful with other people um, but I, I have a certainly a, a very negative view on humanity as a whole um, and I'm not going to say that that's any it's not any individual person's fault. It's just the, the way that the universe works and the way that humans work to, to survive. In order to survive, you have to be selfish. And for things to progress and move along, things have to die. So there has to be destruction and death for things to move on. And I guess uh, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pads on this. And as far as like humans go, um, to be human is to be inhuman. That song is about basically the, the, the human nature of, of violence and uh, people who are power mad and power hungry and how it's easily, it's easy to manipulate society into doing things that only a few people want and that are very, very destructive and very violent and make life miserable for a lot of people. Um, so there's this, this feeling of humanity, just not uh, of 
that just not being inherently um, good. Uh, and people as individuals can be good, right? We can be good to each other. And I'm not even gonna get into people's names, but there's been figures in history that were probably good friends with people that, that were nice, but they were responsible for for pain and suffering of, of millions of people. I'll tell you this. Um, have you ever like delved into like the history of Genghis Khan? Uh, on a brief surface, yes, I do know the history of it. So there's Basically. a theory. There's a theory out there that Genghis Khan slaughtered so many villages, so many people that it allowed nature to regrow, you know, and take over the cities, where he actually caused like global cooling. There's actually a real scientific theory out there about. Genghis Khan um, stemming global warming. <laughs> um, so, would you consider that good? I mean, there, like, definitions of good and evil, you know, it's very subjective, but would you consider that good? Genghis Khan killing so many people, he's saving the planet. It, 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 uh, that's the dilemma of this. There's, you know, two train tracks, and you have the lever on which train, you know, which track the train goes down, and there's you know, there's four people on one and there's one person on one on the track, you know, you have to decide, you have to, there's, you have to weigh that out in your head and say, you know, I guess four people dying is worse than one pe person dying. So there's, there's, it's hard to, those are, you know, those are very difficult questions. So saying like a million people have to die. I mean, does that directly save 50 million people? Does that directly save, you know, the next 2000 years of history uh, and that's a rhetorical question but those are the types of questions you'd have to kind of answer those questions and if you're one, if you're one of those million people are you willing to sacrifice yourself and your family for the good of humanity for the next 2000 years and that's you know that would be a very difficult question for you to to solve right i mean i guess you can see it in a movie where they say okay choose choose which parent has to get shot or, you know, or, or I shoot you like th these are difficult questions. So I, I wouldn't be able to sit down and give a definitive answer for a question like that without, even if I weighed out everything, I don't think there's a, there's a good answer to that. So, so I think, um, your lyrical... I think this is one of, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think this is one of the reasons why I continually find extreme metal such a compelling form of music. Cause when you were, talking earlier on about your your lyrical themes um you can find a lot of those themes in a lot of like really good extreme metal in terms of you know we have this perception that it's very negative um very kind of chaotic and violent form of music but there there always is a sort of message of hope even in a twisted form uh, somewhere beneath it all in terms of wanting the world to be better or wanting individuals to be better in the face of you know, infinite, um, infinite death. Um, and I think there is like a kernel of just humanity wanting to persist and continue, whether you want that to be some kind of Homeric hero or just um, sort of forming like a, a community of individuals, of like-minded individuals against that um, is up to you. But I think metal does often tap into that even when it's at its, at its most negative. So it's quite, an, it's, one of the reasons why I continually find it such a fascinating form of music. 
if I can chime in quickly, and you, you just hit the nail right on the head. And you can go back to my lyrics even with sorrow. I have a song called The Wasted Cry for Hope. And then on this album, the song Impossible Universe is a story about a guy that is looking for a, a place in the universe where there's not violence, where there's not hatred, where you can go and be comfortable in a, a place of love. And I don't want to use that in a hippie way. It's not. But he goes out and he looks and, you know, in a sci-fi way, looks at different places in the universe and you can't find it. All life everywhere devolves into some sort of violence or uh, oppression or something to that effect. And it's, it's disheartening. It's, it's, you know, um, infinite disillusion. It's, um, you, you just get disillusioned with the whole universe. So yeah, I, I was saying as a person, I like to, I want to be a good person. I try to do good things, but the negative view of the universe, uh, you know, the lyrics that all comes out, all this negativity comes out in the lyrics, but the, the underlying theme is, I wish it wasn't like that. I don't want it to be that way, but that's the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, like to <laughs> come back on that as well, it is that idea of like accepting the hopelessness, but also wishing for something else um, that kind of does strike that note of um, hope. And it's, it's yeah, it's music that kind of I return to because it does give me that message of hope in a kind of, in the most extreme and honest kind of way, more honest than, as you know, you kind of mentioned hippie music, but that's sort of, you know, more honest than just false positivity in music, which a lot of more commercially viable music tends to be. Right. You can ignore the problems and the issues and just say everything yeah. is wonderful and it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, and it's, it's how to deal with that also. Right. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, the realization that the, the universe isn't all, you know, rainbows and unicorns and the, the universe itself is, is a violent place. There's a lot of catastrophe. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of rebirth. Uh, it's very violent. And it's the realization and then how do you, you know, coping with that and trying to make sense of it all. So speaking about the universe a little bit, and you know, there's a topic there that I want to expound a little bit upon um, with the little lyrical content being very fatalistic. Um, you know, it's all very subjective when you look at the grand scheme of things, um, it's our own perception of what life is, whether, you know, we're operating in a, a morally good or bad way or it can go from an uncaring perspective, such as the universe not really caring about what happens to us. You even look at the earth, you know, volcanoes and storms and all that, the earth doesn't care about us. But um, so I kind of consider the, the lyrical content being quite fatalistic or more than nihilistic. Um, and you have a background in physics, so um, it kind of, it seems like your your music project is more of like a a conduit for your uh, your educational background as well as your personal view on life, and um, I I see like a, a very fatalistic theme throughout the the lyrical content there, um, which is always good to explore. This is always good to get you know the the impressions behind the music and the the motivation behind that. Um, so let's kind of get into your, your background here. Um, so with physics and all that, I, I, I will tell you this, I have not studied physics. 
I have watched some YouTube videos here and there on different, you know, theories when it comes to quantum mechanics. And um, I did brush up on a general relativity by Einstein when I was younger, just out of curiosity, which uh, I, let me give you my personal take on general relativity. And you can tell me if I educated myself right or not. So general <laughs> relativity, um, which I'm just scratching the surface, by the way, I don't want this to be it's like oh jason said this blah 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 blah. i'm coming from uh, a pure uh intoxicated standpoint where <laughs> uh i view that general relativity you know explains gravity that mass curves uh space and time or space time or whatever you want to call it um and that's what brings about uh gravity however it doesn't explain uh the quantum level of things, the subatomic level of our reality. Uh, general relativity falls short on that aspect, correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, there's, uh, as a disclaimer for myself, uh, I have a bachelor's in physics and math. Uh, I don't have a PhD in physics, but uh, I do have a, you know, a good understanding of this. So everything I say should be correct. Um, there's, there's, two theories of the universe, right? There's, there's quantum mechanics and there's general relativity. And those two, those two don't overlap. And that has been, uh, I guess, the holy grail of physics now for, for 100 years. Um, and they don't, they don't jive with each other because uh, general relativity is a, is a continuous form. In other words, the, the universe, space and time are continuous. It's sort of like analog where quantum mechanics works with discretes. There's a smallest quanta of, of energy, or there's a smallest, smallest quanta of um, space in quantum mechanics, but in general relativity, there isn't. So there needs to be at some point, some type of a bridge or one of those theories is gonna have to change so that you can either quantize general relativity or um, you can incorporate the mathematics of general relativity into quantum mechanics because the math doesn't work uh, using general relativity formulas within quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics requires space to be Euclidean for the most part, basically flat. Once you start putting the curvature in, quantum mechanics becomes, uh, as far as I know, becomes basically impossible for any, uh, for any predictions to be made. So that's that's why there's these two incredible theories, but they don't they don't necessarily mesh very well. Interesting. And you just mentioned uh, Euclidean. So is uh, Euclidean math still utilized in physics? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, because again, when you're using quantum mechanics, um, your your framework is. Um, Basically, your framework of space is X, Y, and Z. Of course, the, the quantum mechanics takes time into account, of course, but uh, the, the space which in, in which it operates uh, is uh, a regular Euclidean geometry. Again, I'm, uh, I'm not a PhD in this, but that's my level of understanding of it. So one thing about uh, Euclid and Euclidean math, um, have you ever like, looked into like his perfect numbers? Um, brief me, I probably have, but I don't recall. The, so 28 is a perfect number um, because, you know, one plus two plus three plus four, all the way up to eight, I believe, equals 28. 
And that's just really interesting. Like I was obsessed with 28 when I was a little kid. And I found out that that number was a perfect number according to Euclidean mathematics. Um, so very, very, I had no idea that such an ancient, um, you know, mathematical theories are still utilized today. That's really, really cool. Um, so just kind of delve more into science here. I know it's your background. You read a lot of scientific publications, uh, more on the phys physics side of it. Um, so you already explained that general relativity does not work at a quantum level. Um, something that I, I saw the other day um, is that we cannot sufficiently measure the speed of light. We can measure it with a mirror, it going in two directions, but we cannot verifiably say with certainty that it's going at the same speed to and from the mirror, meaning that we are just getting one speed you know of it going to and from the mirror and it's just human nature to rationalize well um we cut that in half and that's the time it takes to get to the mirror however we cannot prove that it, it the speed of light actually could take the whole trip there to the mirror for the whole amount of time and then comes back to us in, instantaneously we have no proof that you know it does it takes you know half the time to get there half the time to get back it may take whole the whole time to get there but it comes back instantaneously within an instant faster than the speed of light you know you know beyond uh comprehension do you have any thoughts on that well i guess two things one is you you can measure the speed of light by going through two gates right it goes through the first gate and then it goes through a second gate and you can measure the time difference between those two gates so you can get a measurement of the speed of light using that. What I Not think really because of space time and the curvature. Wait, oh, you're saying because the, the distance, because you don't have an act. Well, this is what I was going to say is you don't have an, you can't get a perfect measurement because your, your length, um, because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you can never get exact measurements of anything. Um, the more exact of measurement of one item, the less you get of the other. So you, if you have, like I was saying, gate one and gate two, if you know the length between them and you have an exact measurement of the time, you can measure the velocity. The problem because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is you can't measure both of those perfectly accurate. You can't get a perfect measurement of time and a perfect measurement of length. One or the other, will be uncertain and the more accurate one is the more uncertain the other is so if you have a perfect perfect measurement of the time you will have a completely random measurement of the length and vice versa if you get perfect length then your time measurement is going to be completely wrong so what i think what you're saying it seems to me is bringing that heisenberg uncertainty principle is since you can't measure these things perfectly accurate um the the, the the more, um, the better your measurement in one, on one thing, the worse it's going to be in the other. So that maybe you can put uh, all your measurement seems to be accurate from one spot from A to B, but not from B to C. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not. Or from A to B to B to A, which is a mirror. Right, exactly. Um, right. So, um, so we have so you no can't clue. Measure. We have no clue of what the actual um, speed is because you know, we, we, we gauge it from going, you know, from point A to point B 
in your case to point C, but with a mirror is point A to point B to B to A. Um, we have a, a measurement of the whole trip there, but not um, it, you know, going from spot to spot, um, which the, the example I saw was like communication to and from Mars. Say there's like a 10 minute delay from Earth to Mars at, you know, at the speed of light. Um, and with that, um, NASA would believe, you know, communicating to Mars, say we have an astronaut there. Um, who's sending stuff back to Earth that it takes, you know, 10 minutes to and from. But in reality, it could just take 20 minutes to get there. But when it's going back to Earth, it's instantaneous. There's no way to disprove that. And as a whole within, you know, measuring the speed of light. And it's kind of going back to the mirror thing that I said. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting. I, and I think this is uh, something with everything where... Um, where you delve really far into it, um, like in physics in your case, or the arts and philosophy and things, the more you get into it, the stranger it becomes. Um, and it question, you know, it raises more questions than it gives answers. And uh, we can talk a little bit about a spooky action at a distance, which is another example of uh, uh, some weird stuff happening in science because of, uh, Spooky action at a distance was uh, Einstein essentially talking about a quantum entanglement, whereby two particles seem to be intimately linked. Um, they act the same regardless of the distance between them. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and just like how that's being uh, developed with uh, perhaps if you know about it, like quantum computing? Yeah. So the yeah entanglement like you said is the spooky action at a distance you have two um two particles um that are intimately related and when you separate them by any distance you you know any distance that when you take a measurement of one it or you you do something to one it automatically affects the other one instantaneously and this is, it goes against this is much, very much against Einstein's general theory of relativity because things should not travel faster than the speed of light. So if something is separated by a distance, it should take a certain amount of time to get the information from one to the other. So if, if these two things are linked and you, uh, if you have A and B and A and B are linked, if you make a change in A, that change in B should take, the, the change in B should happen um, at a later time. In other words, there, there should be a certain period of time, um, a minimum, the speed of light to, for B to understand, you know, to, to know that A made it, had a change in A so that B should change its uh, value also. But spooky action at a distance basically says if you do something to A, it instantly, instantaneously will change B. And again, you can have any distance between them and it's still going to be instantaneous which is uh, uh, one, you know, again, one of the things where relativity and uh, quantum mechanics don't necessarily go, uh, go together. Um, but that, that has been, I hate to use the word proved because it's not, you know, it's not proved on a piece of paper through a theorem, but statistically they've shown that that, that, that is the truth, that you can separate particles by huge distances and if you make a measurement and change 
one particle, the other particle, no matter how far away it is, will instantaneously uh, feel that change also. So that, that is something that has been measured multiple, multiple times to extremely, um, extremely accurate. So it, that's just the way the universe does work. And there really is no explanation for it at this point. Uh, you know, some people think that there's sort of a, a link between the two, that almost like a, like a rubber band, but there's no real understanding of how those two particles can actually be linked with instantaneous information like that, but they are. And quantum, um, quantum computing is uh, utilizing that phenomena to transfer data even quicker, correct? It, it's actually uh, quantum computers work on superposition, which is uh, a particle will have multiple values. In fact, a particle will contain all the values. Um, I shouldn't say all the values. So superposition, let me explain this here. There's um, the values when, before you measure a particle, let's say you wanna measure its momentum or its velocity or, or its energy, will take on every value possible until you measure it. So that particle, is in many different states at one time. It's at a very energetic state. It could be a very low energy state, a mid energy state. It could be in all energy states at the same exact time. When you measure it, it will collapse and it will give you a specific value. Right, that's when it turns um, that, into a particle, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's Rather when you than a measure wave. it. Right, exactly. That's when the wave collapses into a particle. Now. Things aren't necessarily really waves and particles. Now you start to get into quantum electrodynamics and, and field theory. And I'll give you that in a second. So quantum mechanics really doesn't work on um, entanglement. It does work on entanglement, but it also works on the principle of superposition. So all these particles, okay. Um, so the particle in a regular computer, you have a bit, a zero and a one. In a quantum computer, you can take on all the values between zero and one. And if you have what's called a qubit, you have 20, 30, 40 qubits, each one of those bits now is in a superposition state so that they contain all the different values. So what you can do with a quantum computer is things like um, traveling, the, the salesman problem, like uh, you know, what's the shortest distance between two routes is, a, is an exponential problem. So the more routes that you can take, uh, you, you, the, the number of solutions becomes you know, astronomical, be, becomes too large for a regular computer to handle if you want to do every single path. So what a com quantum computer can do because it's superposition, it can do every single path simultaneously. And then when you go to, you tell the computer to give me that measurement, what's the value, all those collapse and it will give you the answer, the correct answer of the shortest distance using all the different values. In other words, like going through a maze. So you try every single uh, way in a maze and then you just tell it, you know, give me the answer to get out and it will do that. So it tries all those different solutions at the same time. So quantum computers are very good for very specific problems that are those types of problems. Uh, does that make sense that I kind of jump jump ahead too much there? No, no you, you made perfect sense um, about them containing all the values until they're measured. Um, then it reverts back to particle form. Um, 
What's there has been a lot? It's not that it's part. It's not. It's not particle form inside the computer per se, but it gives you a specific measure. At that point, it can give you a measurement. It can give you a value as opposed to saying, okay, well, every if you have forty qubits and each one of them is between zero and one, you know what spits out is a forty-bit number at the end. It'll actually give you, you know, give you a value rather than saying, well, it's 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 this hazy value. It, it takes that haze and pushes it into one value. And the analogy would be a wave condenses into a particle. So at the subatomic level, like uh, just kind of put this into English. Um, so it starts out, everything is amorphous, correct? Until right. um, there is uh, a measurement, then it gives a specific value of what it is, correct? Right. So the computer, the computer, basically, when you write a quantum computer program, it's that measurement is the answer. You're telling it, OK, go through all these simultaneous calculations. And then when when all those simultaneous calculations are done, sort of spit out an answer. So, yeah, you get all this amorphous cloud and it's not like they take the measure that that measurement has to be done sort of at the end. Right. It still has to go through those calculations. But when it's finished with those calculations, it's and it's obviously it's more complicated than this, but when it's finished with all those complications, it says, okay, here's your answer. And that's, that's what, that would be the measurement. So it's all amorphous until you make that measurement. It's doing all the calculations until it spits out an answer. Very cool. Shelly, I heard you chiming in. I'm sorry for stepping on you. Uh, no, you didn't hear me chiming in. You might have noticed I've gone very quiet during this session. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am just about following it, but I will admit to complete ignorance when it comes to uh, when it comes to science. Um, but I was I was just keep thinking about this um, Arthur C. Clarke quote that I'm trying to paraphrase now, but it's where he discusses how advanced technology past a certain point for most people is indistinguishable from magic. And uh, I, was just think, I was just thinking about that quote while you guys were having that discussion. I know what some of the words mean, but um, <laughs> might as well be magic. Gets, well, yeah, it gets a little. It gets a little esoteric. Yeah, uh, Tesla said uh, way back in the day, um, who invented the death ray, probably the best invention ever made. Um, he said, once mankind starts studying immaterial, there will be uh, much more scientific breakthroughs than ever before just by studying the material. And I think, you know, quantum mechanics is a gateway to that. And uh, a lot of strange things that are going to be coming about. Um, like uh um brett I, you probably don't know much about uh schopenhauer i know you've read nietzsche and we talked a little bit briefly about that have you really delved into like uh monism or schopenhauer or like esoteric types of uh phil philosophies where it's like non-dualistic um which kind of reminds me of a uh, einstein's spooky action at a distance if that makes sense yeah, I, no, I, I haven't. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say something that I don't know about. So I'll say I'll claim ignorance on those. Yeah. So essentially with Schopenhauer, he had believed he was a great philosopher. And he was actually a, they called him an atheist back then. But nowadays, I think it would call him more of a deist because, yeah, metaphysics and all that. It's really uh, a dense mm -hmm. subject just to casually talk about. But uh, um, so he, he posited that um the subject equals the object so um 
take for instance, uh, we start measuring at the quantum level things and it, it takes a specific form, you know, before it takes that form, it is amorphous, but once we actually observe it, it has a specific form. Um, so that kind of reminds me of like the subject equals the object, which delves into like the mind body problem and a whole bunch of existential stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, the well, yeah, he's kind of um, he's kind of bridging the gap between Eastern and Western philosophy at that point, because Western philosophy all the way back to the Greeks was very much sub subject object. And then obviously you had Cartesian dualism. And then, yeah, Schopenhauer was um, one of the first sort of prominent Western figures to really delve into like Eastern philosophy to kind of uh, bridge the gap between the two. And that's where you see the idea of um, subject object distinction break down. Yeah, and I'm I'm seeing like at a at least with uh my my crass understanding of quantum mechanics that it plays a role there where as soon as something is measured or observed or something that can give us tangible data, it takes form. Otherwise, it's amorphous. It's without form. It has various values, and it's just you know, without, you know, beyond our comprehension, we're unable to measure it until we measure it. But then once we measure it, it gives us, you know, whatever. So it's kind of just like the, the more you delve into philosophy and, you know, at least uh, theoretical physics that we're talking about now. Um, oh, it's not really theoretical. It's been proven, like you said on paper, but uh, um, it's just really, it, it's just too much, I think, for the, the, the average brain to comprehend that there's this unintelligible aspect out there in reality that may have uh, vastly more information than just our brains can perceive, if that makes sense. Yeah, I look at it this way. What you're discussing, like what we're discussing here, the stuff that starts to get very difficult, our brains didn't need that for survival. So when, as we evolved, there was no, you know, your brain evolved so that we, you know, to be survival of the fittest and who's, uh, we, we developed what we needed and an understanding of, we might understand the math of quantum mechanics, but what's really going on, certainly no one really has any clue of what's actually going on. And it's just not necessary, it wasn't necessary for our brains to develop that skill to be able to, to understand it. So I'm not going to say we'll never understand it because who knows, maybe someone will have some sort of a breakthrough and have uh, get we'll get a better understanding of it but at this at this stage uh, it doesn't seem like our brains are really going to be able to comprehend it i agree 100 percent. and it can even delve into advaita vedanta uh, which is a hindu philosophy which pretty much says that you know the conscious mind is unable to actually realize god um and you know we talk about schopenhauer bringing those eastern types of philosophies into the western canon um which is really cool shelly do you have any further thoughts on that well yeah i mean it, it depends how you view consciousness i guess because um you know some people posit that it's sort of an accident of evolution in that we learn abstract thinking and abstract reasoning in order to organize as communities and sort of plan actions and stuff and now we're trying to apply it to uh, these very kind of advanced and um well you know mind-boggling theories and i'm not saying that we 
you know can't understand it but it is it is one of those things where translating it into the language of you know intelligible kind of dialogue is is the real challenge and i think that's kind of leads into what i was hinting at earlier on in terms of just making these ideas accessible to you know the wider population and that is um you know an ongoing challenge in terms of like science communication and stuff but when you get to this really abstract stuff it just it just becomes really really like uh weird and quite trippy to be honest but um that's not to say that we shouldn't persist with it do you have any thoughts on that Brent? yeah well yeah uh, it just you know there's there's just a lot of different ways of thinking it do you know some people say well we'll never understand it don't bother with it then there's uh then there's the religious way of looking at it and just saying well we're not supposed to understand it or we can't understand it because we can't know the mind of God. Uh, and then there's, I guess the way I look at it is, and it's, I think it's great that we should be discovering and looking into all of this. I, I personally see no reason to have any God. And when I use the word God, I just mean something supernatural, something outside of nature that operates outside of the known laws of the universe. I don't think you need any of that. Um, I think the universe is just the way it is, um, and maybe at some point we'll be able to explain it. Maybe we won't, but I, I still think it's it's a good exercise for humanity to try. Right. Um, um, so kind of kind of delving into what you just said that you know there's no like measurement of God in the observable universe. Um, so you would say that God is not imminent. Um, perhaps there is a God, but it's transcendent. Um, have you thought about that? I'll, I'll ask you to, to, to define transcendence before I answer that question. Beyond, my yeah. definition might be different. Like uh, we delve into Schopenhauer. Um, Schopenhauer believed that there is a macrocosmic thing in itself, uh, noumenon, um, that is beyond our human perception, um, but it does not interfere with our daily endeavors here in reality but it can be transcendent you can get into higher forms of reality and have glimpses you know a lot of eastern religions like we're talking about like schopenhauer uh, brought a lot of eastern thought into western philosophy um it's a lot of eastern uh philosophy and religions focus on metaphor to convey their messages um so mm -hmm. it's not distinct phenomena that they're referencing they're met referencing metaphors that resonate on a universal level like a universal truth and things like that where you know there there could be uh quite possibly a lot of people believe in it that um god exists it's just beyond our comprehension that's what i'm trying to say yeah yeah um you you can almost say quantum mechanics exists and it's beyond our comprehension also but yet i can show you quantum mechanic effects i can there's in some ways there's a, a proof there's a, there's prediction and measurement that coincide very well with each other what you're what you're discussing what you're talking about is something that is beyond comprehension and you can't test it you right, that's why metaphor is used that's why right it's hinted at but there's never a distinct form to it like we look at the quantum level where everything's amorphous that is God right. is unable to be measured. Um, right. And I see no problem with people believing in that. And with that, you know, God is transcendent. Um, 
um, with that, it's not imminent because there's no, you know, miracles happening on earth and all that, but right. there is a, well, an amorphous aspect to it where it's transcendent. Well, you're, to me, that's adding a layer of complexity that doesn't need to be there. Um, I don't think it serves any other purpose other than making someone feel better. Uh, and I guess you can bring that starts to get into existentialism, so I'm correct. But um, I, I think that that idea is, yeah, just adding a layer of complexity that just doesn't need to be there, or at least I don't need to, I don't need to have it there. I'm not saying that other people shouldn't, and if it makes other people feel better, and if they believe that that is an actual truth, that's fine. Uh, you know, as long as that's not interfering with the way people live, like other religions do, um, then I have no problem with it. I just, for, for myself, I just feel like I, that's a layer that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, it would be called deism, um, which is a hard thing to describe. I mean, we can delve into uh, further examples of it, spouse through history with Gnosticism and things like that, where there's one layer that is the universe, but the universe is profane. Therefore, there has to be a higher plane of existence, a higher reality that uh, what we deem God. I'm not saying God as a physical being or anything like that. Yeah. Higher reality. Um, Shelly, do you have any thoughts on that before we move into the last topic? Um, I mean, yeah, to some extent, it feels like giving different names to the same thing. Um, but everyone sort of has their their outer limit of what they're willing to kind of understand in terms of how the universe works. Some people don't want to delve very deep. Some people, as you've been discussing earlier on, go right down to the very limits of, of human knowledge. and I think when that happens, some people, they might just say, well, it's, it's unknowable. They might call it some sort of God, not necessarily in the, in the Christian sense, but I think it's a very, it's a very personal thing. Um, and once you get past a certain point, you're almost just talking about intuition rather than anything empirical. I mean, you know, some people sort of talk about knowing God in some kind of sub-intellectual kind of way um some people feel the opposite and feel that there is nothing beneath beneath it all but i think past a certain point we're really just sort of giving different names to essentially the same the same phenomenon as, as brett mentioned earlier on not really a problem as long as we're not trying to influence each other's behavior which is the distinction we, we need to make because obviously formal religious doctrine is very different to the kind of abstract conceptual entity or whatever you want to call it that we're discussing here yeah i agree i'm, I'm on yeah. board with that yeah, yeah we're not bible thumping on this podcast today <laughs> <laughs> mr brett um just to kind of you know wrap our uh, discussion into science into a nice little bow tie um what do you think the beginning of the universe was? Do you think it was the Big Bang? Um, what about the end of the universe and our place within it? What is your general thoughts on you know the beginning of time, the end of time? Um, like, there's a lot of theories out there about how the universe is going to end, um, where it's going to be like a heat death, or everything's just going to cool down, or you know things like that. Um, what's your personal thought on? the universe itself um i i think you're a very empirical guy so you might have a uh 
not concrete answer to it, but you may have some of your own personal thoughts injected right. into it. That's, a, that's it's an excellent question, but at the same time, an extremely difficult one, obviously. Um, I do believe that the Big Bang as a theory holds probably a lot of truth to it. I think it's a little bit arrogant of science to think that they can know the first trillionth of a second uh, what was going on, although we have pretty good mathematical formulas of what was going on uh, at the very early stages of the universe and the beginnings of the Big Bang. We Obviously, no one really knows what was going on before, what caused this initial spark of inflation. Um, but I, I do think that some of these formulas, the numbers might work, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're anything more than just a formula. Uh, again, there's no intuitive, there's no, there's nothing really explaining what was going on. And I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to explain what was really going on. So, so the beginnings of it, I do believe that matter was condensed. Everything was packed down into, you know, very small space. And for some reason, uh, this this event happened and sort of spawned the universe. And uh, as as the energy spread out and inflation happened and atoms matter condensed uh, and started forming stars and galaxies, I think that's a fairly accurate model of what did happen. Uh, what was before, I, I just won't even bother guessing. I, I have no idea. I, in fact, one of the songs, Impossible Universe, one of the... the one of the lines in it is, um, you know, what was before, was it eternally dark? Uh, is time cyclic? And that that's sort of this, this question of, is this it? Like, is there a beginning and an end to the universe? And then that's it. There's nothing before. And eventually in trillions of years, when, when the final particles basically decay into, into photons and there's a, there, or there's a heat death, um, and then that's the end of it. Then nothing, there, there will never exist anything after that. Uh, or is this a cycl is this cyclical um, in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, in tr one out of every hundred trillion years, uh, a universe is spawned into existence or, or, or is there a bubble universe? Are yeah, universes popping up? Yeah. Is there universes popping up right. infinitely amount of times in an infinite amount of Space right. outside of that, what we consider our universe. The bubble universe is what Nietzsche said with the eternal recurrence. That is 100% what Nietzsche predicted um, with his own take on reality and all that was literally a bubble universe with infinite amount of universes out there and an infinite amount of you out there in different universes. I mean, it's all the same universe, technically, just you know, it's beyond our comprehension to conceive it all. Um, right. that essentially, the human being is immortal um, with the eternal recurrence. Shelley, do you want to correct me on that? Uh, well, you, yeah, you're kind of half right in that the eternal return was, it was speculated whether he meant it literally or whether he was using it as a prescription for how to live your life. In that if you imagine every action and every decision that you make will be done eternally over and over and over again then you might think differently about some of the choices that you make about your life um but yeah that's essentially what he said is um 
imagine that or that is what will happen to you and therefore um, you will keep living the same life over and over and over again um, and now how are you going to make these decisions how are you going to live your life um, so yeah that's yeah pretty much what he was saying All there's right. two different Mr. Brett, oh, do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? I was just going to say briefly, there's two ways of looking at the bubble universe. There's one where it's like the, the Rick and Morty version, which is there's an infinite number of each of us in an infinite number of universes. And then I guess there's sort of another way, which is really the way I kind of look at it is that there's just this, another set of laws or physics or even the same type of physics with the same constants that we have, but in another part of, I guess I'm going to say another part of the universe but uh, that the uni there's just an infinite number of universes and they're not necessarily an infinite numbers of me in, in, in other universes. There's just other stuff out there. And, you know, in, in a sense, that's, an, that's infinite, um, but not necessarily an, infin an infinite number of Earths with all of us, you know, uh, you know, yesterday I went out and I made a left turn instead of a right turn. Uh, I don't believe that type of a, a multiverse. I'm, I'm more of a, there's just, there's just other stuff out there. We just don't know where it is and we can't communicate with it. Well, what about on the quantum level where we talked about how there's an infinite value to things until we measure it and then it has a specific value. Like it could be an infinite, you know, number of configurations and all of that until we realize it. That's why I kind of want to get into a Nietzsche about the eternal recurrence is that you know there there's an infinite amount of possibilities that happen in reality but we uh we actualize and realize our own physical existence and the actions that we take within that you know we 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 chart our own course within the the sea of infinite possibilities um so uh, I do want to thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Mr. Brett. Um, I'm glad we were able to delve into quantum mechanics a little bit today. Um, it's a little bit outside of my realm of knowledge, but you're definitely very insightful in there um, in that aspect. Um, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, thank you for having me. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun and it was a different type of interview and I, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a good chat. I mean, we're not trying to do like cookie cutter interviews on this podcast at all. You never do. Um, and you never do. Um, so I want to thank uh, Mr. Shelley for returning as Mr. Co-host. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and I've definitely, definitely learned a lot. Uh, well outside my field of expertise, but really fascinating. So, yeah, thank you, guys. Cheers. Um, Cheers, everyone. And uh, yeah. Have a great <laughs> Thanks one. again. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Have a good and one too. Journey into darkness is next.